0: you're listening to orange blaze a florida trail podcast i'm your host misty little earlier this year i interviewed mills kelly historian and host of the green tunnel podcast which as the podcast website declares delves into topics including the quirky history of trail food the shelters and structures built along the trail and dangers you might encounter during a hike Mills and I have kept in touch over the last few months and we've decided to do a podcast episode swap today an episode of the green tunnel will play on the orange blaze podcast and an episode of the orange blaze podcast will play on the green tunnel podcast I've chosen an episode from February of this year entitled the lost AT I love these tidbits of Appalachian Trail history and I think you will too If you don't already subscribe to the Green Tunnel Podcast, please check out the show notes for this episode to a direct link to this episode and the rest of the episodes Mills and his team have produced since September 2021 at orangeblaze.thegardenpathpodcast.com. And with that, here's the Green Tunnel Podcast.
1: In the earliest days of the Appalachian Trail, getting across the new river was not efficient at all, but it was peaceful. If you were coming from the south, the trail led you down to the riverbank just north of Freeze, Virginia. Once you reached the bank, you yelled across the river, which was easily 50 yards wide at that point, until someone in the tidy little white house on the far shore heard you. A member of the Dixon family would answer back, and for five cents, would pull across the river to pick you up in their flat-bottom boat named Redbird. Then they'd pull you to the other shore so you could continue with your hike. If you were coming from the North, you didn't have to yell. You just knocked politely on their door, paid your nickel, and rode in style while Mr. and Mrs. Dixon pulled you across. These days, AT hikers who want to cross the New River in Virginia, just stroll across the Virginia Avenue Bridge. It's not the most peaceful of river crossings since the bridge carries a lot of traffic on US Highway 460, but it's efficient. And there's no yelling involved. Unless it's in traffic. Welcome to The Green Tunnel, a podcast on the history of the Appalachian Trail. My name is Mills Kelly, and I'm your host. Today we're going to tell you a story from the earliest days of the Appalachian Trail, A time when trail scouts were still trying to find a complete route north or south through what was sometimes unmapped wilderness. And it's a story about a 300 mile long section of the Appalachian Trail you almost certainly have never heard of. Throughout its history, the Appalachian Trail has been rerouted so many times that I think it's fair to say that no one could tell you how often that's happened. Some of the big changes to the trail are pretty well known. In 1958, the southern terminus at Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia was abandoned in favor of the current terminus at Springer Mountain. And in the early 1970s, the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club had to shift the trail off its original route on the crest of Mount Weather in Northern Virginia, a reroute that created the famous roller coaster section of the trail. Each time the trail moved substantially Rural communities along its route feel the loss of the hikers, the money they spend, and the cultural exchange their presence encourages. But changes like the abandonment of Mount Oglethorpe or the creation of the roller coaster were small compared to what happened in southwest Virginia in 1952. The section of trail the Appalachian Trail Conservancy abandoned that year was 300 miles long, 15 percent of the trail at the time. At one level, what happened in Southwest Virginia in 1952 is a pretty simple story. Just like a lot of the Appalachian Trail in its earliest days, large portions of the original route south of Roanoke were on old abandoned roads or on private property. Moving the trail more than 50 miles to the west into the newly formed Jefferson National Forest just made good sense. Because the trail would be on federal land, it would be protected from development. And Forest Service rangers could provide at least some help with trail maintenance. But I'm a historian, and I know that history is rarely simple. You see, when the trail left the Great Plateau of Southwest Virginia and moved off Iron Mountain, that section vanished from the story of the Appalachian Trail. But it did not vanish from the story of the communities that Dot, Floyd, Patrick, Carroll and Washington counties. If you go to Floyd, or Meadows of Dan, or Galax, or Fries, the trail lives on in the memories of some of the oldest residents of those communities. It's as alive to them today as it was when smelly, scruffy hikers passed through their lives. Uh, My uncle, who's uh, 94
2: now, remembers when they came through with measuring wheels and markers and came
3: down through the field and uh, they stopped and asked him what they were doing. Said they were marking out the Appalachian
1: Trail and uh, uh, came right past the old home place. That was Doug Bell, who lives with his wife Arlene in Copper Hill, Virginia, about halfway between the towns of Bent Mountain and Check in Floyd County. We first met at the Floyd County Public Library in 2018. When I gave a talk about the Appalachian Trail passing through the area, Doug introduced himself to me and explained with pride that the trail used to pass right across his grandfather's farm. Doug took me to visit the old home place the following year and showed me all around where the farm had once been and the route the old trail took through the farm. And the trail came past the house right through the front yard, down Little River to the main road, and uh, from that point went uh, south towards uh, the parkway. Doug was just one of the many people I met in 2018 who wanted to tell me all about their family's connection to the original route of the Appalachian Trail. Before we dive deeper into the story of what many folks call the Old Trail, let's take a moment to visualize the trail's original and current routes. I'll be talking about a lot of place names for the next few minutes, but don't worry. We've also included a map of the old and new routes in the show notes on r2studios.org. If you want to follow along, pull up the map now. It's okay. I'll wait. Ready? Just in case you can't pull up the map, imagine for a minute that you're looking at a map of Southwest Virginia, the section of the state that's sandwiched between West Virginia and North Carolina. In the bottom left-hand corner is Damascus, and in the upper right corner is McAfee Knob, one of the most popular spots on the entire trail. The trail's current route goes north from Damascus through the Grayson Highlands just to the east of town. It then cuts north and west toward Parisburg, where it crosses the New River. From there, it angles northeast towards Dragon's Tooth and finally McAfee Knob. Now, wipe the current route from your mind, and go back to Damascus. Before 1952, when hikers left Damascus, they passed to the north on the ridge called Iron Mountain. When the trail reached the new river, it dropped down from Farmer Mountain and then followed the river south until it reached a spot near the mill town of Fries, where hikers crossed the river on that small ferry boat named Redbird. Then they headed through the furniture manufacturing town of Galax, briefly crossed back into North Carolina for just a few miles, and returned to Virginia near Fancy Gap. Still with me? From there, hikers dropped down into the Dan River Gorge before climbing back up onto the Great Plateau of Virginia. They traversed the rim of that plateau along an old colonial era roadbed. That roadbed became the route followed by the Blue Ridge Parkway today. Eventually, hikers pass just to the south and west of Roanoke, climbing up onto Catawba Mountain, where McAfee Knob is located. Great job, everybody. I hope we didn't lose you on the old trail. Now, back to the story of the people who keep the memory of the old trail alive. Sally Dixon Riggs grew up on the east shore of the New River, just downstream from Freeze. Her family operated that ferry across the river for generations. In the 1930s and 1940s, her mother and father charged five cents to pull hikers across the river on Redbird.
4: We moved to the river when I was three years old, and we moved into a little three-room house. And uh, there was uh, four of us children then, and uh, two more were born after we moved into the little house. And there was six of us. We were a year apart. Mother had six babies in six years. You know, we didn't have a lot, but anyway, we grew up. But we never went hungry or anything like that. We had some a garden and some few things like that. We did fish. We loved catfish. Part of the uh, Appalachian Trail did come from Pulaski to near Freeze. We lived about a couple of miles below Freeze, and uh, there was no bridge there or ferry. Because the Dixon Ferry had been washed out. Then uh, people would need to, that was walking the trail, would need to come across the river. The little dirt road above our house, which is now called the uh, Freeze Road, you went so far up that road and then you turned and went back across a hill, the Appalachian Trail did. And you knew we were on the trail because they had the little white painted markers on rocks or on a tree or on a post or something.
1: Even though Sally was a little girl in 1952 when the trail moved, she still remembers the hikers, and one hiker in particular. And uh, I remember
4: this one guy and his name was Gene. Gene? Gene. I understand he's still living and he came and Daddy brought him and I think somebody was with him, but he brought him across the river. And we stood and talked a while. And later that year at Christmas, he did send us a Christmas card with his picture on it at the end of the trail, which was in Maine. And uh, so we really enjoyed that picture.
1: That man named Gene was the legendary thru-hiker Gene Espy, the second person to thru-hike the trail a feat he pulled off in 1951. I met Gene in the summer of 2019 and asked him if he remembered a little girl at the ferry keeper's house. He said he did, that she spent most of the time hiding behind her mother's skirts, peering out at him with big eyes. That little girl was Sally. I spent a lot of time over the past four years tracking down people in southwest Virginia who still remember what they mostly call the old trail. Dorothy Shiflett was the oldest at 101. In the 1920s and early 1930s, her father, Shirley Cole, was the county agent in the Floyd County State Agricultural Extension Office. Without any prompting from the ATC, he scouted a 150-mile route for the trail near his home. His proposed route ran between the Peaks of Otter near Lynchburg to the Dixon family's home on the New River. I wasn't able to record our conversation, but I did take good notes. And here's what Dorothy had to say about being out on the trail with her father in the early 1930s.
0: Well, I went with him a time or two. We just went up into the woods someplace and sat there and talked about it. It was him and me and a couple of boys from town. There was a school teacher who came with us once. She had made up a song about the trail, and we sang the song together. For that trail, he organized a bunch of boys. They were 4-H or future farmers, I think. He would take them up there to work on the trail, and he would name some of the places after the boys who helped him.
1: Dorothy's pride in her father's role as one of the founders of the Appalachian Trail really came through in our conversation. She kept coming back to it as one of the most important accomplishments in her family history. But as much as she loved her father, Shirley, legendary ATC chairman Myron Avery was not such a fan. You see, throughout its history, management of the Appalachian Trail has been a balancing act between local clubs and the ATC Central Administration. The local clubs wanted oversight of the trail sections they maintained. Myron Avery wanted to control the entire trail from Washington, D.C., Although Avery wasn't yet the chairman of the ATC when Shirley Cole mapped out a route for the trail in southwest Virginia, he was very much in charge of planning where the trail should go, and where it shouldn't. By 1929, only two significant problems confronted Avery and his team, finding a route from the New Hampshire-Maine border to Mount Katahdin, and finding a route between the Peaks of Otter and Damascus on the Tennessee-Virginia border. To find routes he would approve of, Avery liked to hire experienced trail scouts he trusted. Men including George Massa, Roy Osmer, and Walter Green had to figure out paths through the mountains of Maine, Southwest Virginia, East Tennessee, Western North Carolina, and Georgia. Avery wanted routes that would be both scenic and just challenging enough to satisfy the rugged hikers in the early AT clubs. Unlike the trail scouts Avery hired to do his bidding, Shirley Cole came up with a route all on his own. And the route Cole proposed would, he thought, solve one of the two most pressing problems for the ATC, how to connect the two Virginia towns of Damascus and Moranoke. In 1929, no one at the ATC or in the Virginia trail clubs had a proposal for how to connect those two towns, And to make matters worse, the most recent map of some of those areas had been drawn by military engineers during the Civil War more than 60 years earlier. Myron Avery was not a man who typically expressed doubts, but in this case, he wrote to a friend that Southwest Virginia was truly a terra incognita. He just had no clue what to do. If you've listened to Founding the Trail, The first episode of our show, you'll know that Avery was a control freak. He hated it when other people other than his own men proposed routes for the trail, which is why Avery had a minor meltdown in the summer of 1930. At the annual meeting of the ATC at the Skyland Resort and what would soon be Shenandoah National Park, Avery had to sit through a presentation by Shirley Cole about a possible route that Avery knew nothing about a route that Avery had no control over. And so, Avery took matters into his own hands. He asked one of his most trusted scouts, the Georgia forester Roy Osmer, to come to Virginia as quickly as possible to scout a route that would be Avery's route, not Cole's. That plan fell apart almost immediately when Osmer got hopelessly lost in Floyd County and had to ask Shirley Cole for help. Osmer ended up proposing the route Cole had first suggested, with one exception. Cole wanted the trail to swing south of Roanoke, but that portion of the route never quite materialized for a very good reason. Diana Christopoulos, former president of the Roanoke Appalachian Trail Club, describes that first route this way.
3: The first route really never was used. Uh, It was mapped out in 1931 and marked, and there was no club here at that time. And frankly, they just drew kind of a straight line on what would later become the Blue Ridge Parkway. The area hadn't even been mapped by the U.S. Geological Services at the time. I'm sure that seemed like a convenient way to do it. But by 1932, uh, Myron Avery and and others had come down here and formed uh, the Roanoke Appalachian Trail Club with hikers from Roanoke College, Hollins College, and a women's hiking group called Nomad's. When Avery came down here and said, well, we want to use this 1931 route, they said, well, well, I don't think you do. Uh, You want to come over here on Tinker Cliffs and McAfee Knob as a little side trail.
1: Once everyone agreed that taking the trail over McAfee Knob was a better choice than swinging south of Roanoke, marking out the new trail section began. And the route Cole and Osmer agreed on had several outstanding features.
3: Rock Castle Gorge would have been one of the most spectacular, and it still has hiking trails all around it. And then further south, undoubtedly, the Pinnacles of Dan has these dramatic rock pinnacles that stick up and really steep slopes and waterfalls. And Avery loved it. And when Jimmy Denton and Tom Campbell did the relocation in the 1950s, a lot of people pushed back on it. And Jimmy Denton said, Man, the one we really felt bad about omitting, was the pinnacles of Dan. It's super hard, just up and down and incredibly dramatic.
1: The section of the old trail that ran through the Dan River Gorge was maintained by a man named John Barnard. One day in 1948, a writer named Robert Brown showed up unannounced at Barnard's front door. He was researching a story on the AT for National Geographic magazine. Barnard was happy to board him for the night, And while waiting for dinner, Brown wrote,
5: I tipped gently back and forth in the rocker. Black clouds banked up. It was quiet as a desert night. The shower broke and drenched the well-trimmed lawn, the round bed of geraniums ringed with pansies, and the rose bushes along the fence. A spate of water gurgled down the drainpipe.
1: Before long, Mrs. Barnard invited Brown inside for a meal that would satisfy even the hungriest hiker. Bowls of
5: vegetables and stewed fruit, platters of meat, plates piled high with hot biscuits and cornbread. pitchers of milk and cream, jars of honey, and homemade jam crowded the table. There were squash, string beans, and mashed potatoes, hot veal and cold ham, applesauce and pears, and quantities of sweet farm-fresh butter to slather on the hot breads. <sighs> what a feast.
1: Over the past four years, I've gotten to know John Barnard's grandson, Ralph Barnard, very well. Ralph grew up at his grandfather's house. Until 2021, Ralph and his wife Hope lived in that same house where Robert Brown had such a feast. Now they live next door, and one of Ralph's daughters lives in the old home place.
2: Yeah, I grew up Grandpa. He's He was my buddy. It was a good place to live in.
1: Good place. Now in his 80s, Ralph has very vivid memories of groups of AT hikers staying at his grandfather's farm.
2: Daddy built this big old barn down here so they'd have somewhere to milk and everything. They sold milk back in. And uh, when uh got the barn built and everything, and we'd have uh, hay upstairs and a lot of a lot of the uh, people coming through on the Appalachian Trail knew Grandpa, and they'd look him up, and they'd, a lot of them would stay in the barn. And uh, of course, we'd uh, have to check their matches and stuff like that, but, but he'd, uh, he'd let them stay in the barn.
1: Ralph also remembers taking hikers up and over the pinnacles of Dan a section of the trail that hikers at the time described as the second most difficult on the entire A.T.
2: Because Grandpa, he he liked, uh, well, he was fascinated by that mountain. A lot of times he'd walk with him up there. But then later on, he got so he didn't do as much climbing as he did. Because, see, when you uh, go across the pinnacles down there, On the other side of the river, there was what we called the Indian Ladder. And the uh, Indian Ladder wasn't wasn't nothing but just places in the rock where the Indians hewed out so you get a hole and go up, cause that's a long, sleek rock up through there. And we we had, had the trail up through there, that's where the Appalachian Trail went.
1: A.T. hikers often find themselves face-to-face with wildlife. But when the trail ran through the Dan River Gorge, they also had to contend with panthers.
2: I come along about the time that they got gone. I remember as a kid, they're talking about They'd seen the panther down below the mountain. And, you know, a panther is a pretty good-sized cat. And he hollers like a woman was screaming, you know. So uh, I did. I, I heard about that.
1: Not surprisingly, when Avery and the ATC decided to relocate the trail away from Barnard's part of the state, he wasn't happy.
2: He didn't like it. The uh there should be something that he wrote about that somewhere. I know he sent a letter back to the people about that. He said it uh it was the most scenic part of the whole whole trail. And he was talking about the mountain over here, you know, and, and, and the whole whole deal.
1: Ralph is a very good-natured man, but when he thinks back about how his grandfather felt about losing the trail, he shakes his head and stares at the floor, as though he was remembering those days back in the 1940s when he used to hang out with AT hikers in the barn and listen to their stories about panthers, about trying to scale the pinnacles, and about what were, to him, faraway places like Washington, D.C., In addition to the beauty and challenge of the Dan River Gorge, one of the other things AT hikers missed out on when the trail moved away was the Old Fiddlers Convention in downtown Galax.
2: Now, judges, number 12 brings us the Brushy River Boys from here in Galax, headed up by Roscoe Russell. Roscoe, I think you said you was going to do leather britches. Is that the one?
1: The convention began in 1935 and is the oldest continuously operating Fiddler's Convention in the world. And, of course, they missed out on the chance to cross the new river at Redburg. As Sally Rakes remembers...
4: People would walk up the trail and they could not get across the river. And uh, they uh, sometimes would holler across the river and, hey, can you, let set me across the river. So. If Daddy was there, he would go get them, bring them across the river. And uh, then sometimes my mother did that, pull the boat across the river and pick somebody up. But anyway, they would, a lot of times would come and uh, then would stand and talk a while and rest a while, you know, before they started
1: on. When Benton Mackay first proposed the AT in 1921, One of his primary goals was to spur economic development in small towns in Appalachia. One of those towns, Freeze, Virginia, is just upstream from the spot where Sally Rake's parents put hikers across the New River in Redbird. I interviewed Richard Farmer, the mayor of Freeze, in 2019. He grew up there when the mill was still humming, and he told me all about what it was like to grow up in a mill town. The mill closed in 1989. And the town has slowly declined as more and more people have moved away looking for work. If the Appalachian Trail still crossed the river just downstream from town, things would look a lot different in Freeze these days. I didn't record that interview, but here's what he had to say. We haven't rebounded since the mill closed. There's just been nothing to take its place. We're trying to build up tourism. Because there's so little work, most of the folks still living in Freeze drive to a job somewhere else. They go to Galax to work in the furniture mill or at the mirror plant. Or they do service work there, restaurant stores and such. Some go up to the Radford Arsenal or White Trucks in Dublin. Some go to Independence, the county seat. Despite the challenges his community faces, Farmer wouldn't live anywhere else. We live in this beautiful place with these beautiful views, but we just need a break. When you speak with people along the old route of the AT in southwestern Virginia, people like Mayor Farmer, you realize how much the Appalachian Trail meant to them and their neighbors. It's not as though they aren't connected with the world around them, because they are. But if the trail still came through their region, they would have a chance to meet thousands of happy, smelly, and scruffy hikers. Hikers who would have spent money in local stores, maybe stayed in a hotel or hostel, and who would have brought with them their life experiences from around the world. And those hikers would have gained just as much from meeting the people who live in Freeze or Galax or Meadows of Dan or Floyd or Bent Mountain. They would have learned about the mountain music that you hear in our shows. They would have had a chance to climb the pinnacles of Dan, to ride in a flat bottom boat like Redbird, to look down on the New River Valley from Farmer Mountain. But after World War II, the leadership of the ATC, spurred on by Jim Denton of the Roanoke Appalachian Trail Club, decided to move the trail away from those beautiful places.
3: When they did the relocation, uh, Jimmy Denton was president. He said, most of this thing is a roadwalk. It's not marked. The Blue Ridge Parkway has been built on top of it. It's a horrible trail. And he said that in the 1949 annual meeting. And uh, by then, Avery was pretty ill and didn't want to get into a big relocation. So Benton told him, the volunteers of RATC will do it. And they did. They relocated it 160, 170 miles in about five years. And the trail that they built was pretty amateurish and pretty much all had to be rebuilt. But I think what was important was getting the trail off the roads and more onto protected land that was protected by the Forest Service that could gradually become the trail that we have today.
1: Who, exactly, was the AT intended for? In 1949, the leadership of the ATC decided the trail was for hikers, not for local communities badly in need of economic benefits the trail brought. Since there weren't any organized trail clubs between Roanoke and Damascus, that decision wasn't hard-fought. Only John Barnard at the Dan River Gorge, along with a few other scattered volunteers here and there, protested the ATC's decision. Had there been a trail club or clubs to take better care of the trail and later to defend it from a relocation, it's possible the ATC might have made a different call. Instead, they chose to move the trail 50 miles to the west. By the 1950s, vacation homes were springing up in the mountains. Ski areas were encroaching on the old trail, and timber companies were logging off large stretches of the mountains sometimes obliterating the trail as they did. The new route Jim Denton scouted was in the newly formed Jefferson National Forest and would be protected on federal land. Really, from the perspective of ATC headquarters, the decision was a no-brainer. When the ATC pulled the trail away, knowledge of the old route quickly passed out of the AT community's memory. New trail guides appeared that made no mention of the lost Appalachian Trail. And histories of the trail all but ignored the fact that for its first two decades, 300 miles of the trail passed through a region now all but invisible to AT hikers. But the trail left many traces on the landscape of this region, some of which are still easily read today for those who know how to look. The Galax chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution is the Appalachian Trail chapter, although the current local DAR leaders aren't quite sure why. Several roads still bear the name Appalachian Trail. And, if you know where to look, you can find rusty old AT markers on trees, likely put there by Shirley Cole, John Barnard, and Myron Avery in the early 1930s. In a part of America where the past really matters, the Appalachian Trail lives on, It's inscribed on the inner landscapes of the people who still remember and are determined not to forget. In this Appalachian heartland, people's lives are organized around stories of the past. The past is woven into their present and their future. Memories of the Appalachian Trail and its history remain an important way that they make sense of their world. They wish other people remembered it the way they do. But in the end, all that really matters is that they remember the old trail. If you enjoyed this episode, I have a new book out called Virginia's Lost Appalachian Trail, where I dive even deeper into the history of this all-but-forgotten section of the trail. And for a limited time, Green Tunnel listeners can get the book at 30% off, head to arcadiapublishing.com and use code TUNNEL23. If you'd like to save even more, enter our Instagram contest. Just follow Green Tunnel Pod on Instagram and be on the lookout for our giveaway post. The Green Tunnel is a production of R2 Studios at George Mason University. Today's episode was produced by me. Jeanette Patrick and Jim Ambusky are our executive producers. A special thank you to Ralph Lee Barnard, Sally Dixon Rakes, Richard Farmer, Dorothy Shiflet, and Doug Bell for sharing their memories of the old trail with me. And a big thank you to Diana Christopoulos, who is the real expert on every aspect of the history of the Roanoke Appalachian Trail Club. Allison Langford read Dorothy Shiflet's quotation, Lincoln Mullen read Richard Farmer's, and Jim Ambusky read Robert Brown. The archival music you heard earlier was Leather Britches by the Brushy River Boys. Thanks to the Smithsonian Institution's Folkways Recording Collection for allowing us to feature this song, which was recorded at the 1964 Old Fiddlers Convention in Galax, Virginia. You'll find a link to the full album in our show notes. Our original music is performed by Scott Miller of Swoop, Virginia, and Andrew Small and Ashley Watkins of Floyd, Virginia. Be sure to rate and review The Green Tunnel on Apple or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. At R2 Studios, we're on a mission to democratize history through podcasting. And we invite you to join us. So head to r2studios.org and click on Support Us to learn more about how you can help us make the best history podcasts out there. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you back here soon.